Thanks, Dr. Chabner, for the opportunity to speak today about the clinical utility of plasma profiling in ALK-positive lung cancer. So these are my disclosures. And so I have three objectives for today's talk. First, I'm gonna provide a brief overview of ALK-positive lung cancer. And next, we'll briefly describe the molecular basis of resistance to next-generation ALK inhibitors. And finally, we'll spend the bulk of the talk talking about the clinical utility of uh, liquid biopsies or plasma genotyping for management of this disease. First, a bit about the disease. So as many of you know, non-small cell lung cancer is a very heterogeneous disease that encompasses many uh, distinct molecular subsets, of which ALK is one, as illustrated by the pie chart. So ALK-positive lung cancer represents 5% of non-small cell lung cancer and is really defined by the presence of oncogenic fusions that drive constitutive act activation of ALK. The most common of these fusions pairs EML4 with ALK and occurs in approximately 80 to 85% of ALK-positive lung cancers. ALK-positive lung cancer is, a is an intrinsically aggressive disease that tends to present at very advanced stages after it's disseminated to spaces like the central nervous system and the pleural and pericardial surfaces. Fortunately, this inherently or, or intrinsically aggressive biology can at least be temporarily overcome with use of tyrosine kinase inhibitors directed towards ALK. Unfortunately, however, these therapies are not curative, as illustrated by the, uh, the images here from a patient of mine who had lymphangitic carcinotosis at presentation and had an excellent response to therapy, only to relapse within a year on therapy. This is a picture of early relapse, where she did go on to develop more substantial changes in the pulmonary parenchyma over time. Despite the fact that these therapies are not curative, patients do derive tremendous benefit from having ALK-directed therapies. In fact, sequencing these drugs has resulted in an average life expectancy that exceeds four years. So in, this is fourfold higher than uh, all comers with non-small cell lung cancer. And, and, the, and the, the improvement in the life expectancy really has to do with the fact that there's such effective drugs for targeting ALK and the fact that you can sequence these drugs. There are currently five, as of Friday, five FDA-approved treatments for uh, the treatment of ALK-positive lung cancer, and these can broadly be divided into three generations. The first generation is represented by crizotinib, the second generation includes seritinib, electinib, and brigatinib, and the third generation is exclusively occupied by lorlatinib. Most patients, historically patients were treated with crizotinib first, followed by a second generation ALK inhibitor, and more recently followed by lorlatinib. Most patients respond to crizotinib for nine to 12 months, a second generation ALK inhibitor in the post-crizotinib setting for six to 12 months, and then a subset of patients respond to lorlatinib for approximately six months after relapse on a first or second generation ALK inhibitor. But you'll notice that I started off by saying historically. So the, the treatment paradigm for management of ALK-positive lung cancer is constantly evolving. And now, based on multiple studies demonstrating very durable responses with upfront treatment with second-generation ALK inhibitors, this is, the, this is the current standard. For example, although there's wonderful data using brigatinib and using seritinib as well, I put electinib here because the data is a bit more mature for electinib currently. But in the most recent uh, update of a study comparing upfront treatment with crizotinib versus upfront treatment with electinib, the median progression-free survival with electinib is, a, is now a, approaching three years, which is very impressive. And, but as mentioned, patients invariably relapse on these therapies, and there's been multiple elegant studies by various groups that have elucidated the, the molecular basis of these resistance, of resistance in these relapse events, and unfortunately that's beyond the scope of today's talk, but it is important to have a framework for thinking about resistance for moving forward with this talk. And there's three broad categories of resistance. The first is tyrosine kinase domain mutations. 
that for drug development to date has been the most relevant target. And these tyrosine kinase domain mutations tend to be acquired. They don't tend to pre-exist before a patient begins treatment, or at least that's how it's thought of. And these mutations account for 50% of relapses after treatment with a second-generation ALK inhibitor. Other categories include bypass pathway activation and phenotypic transformation. Admittedly, phenotypic transformation is quite rare, and it's something that we're, we might be seeing more of as we use more potent ALK inhibitors. This picture represents a, a, a patient who, whose cancer transformed to non, from non-small cell lung cancer to small cell lung cancer, as, as kind of exemplified by the expression of synaptophysin, which is a neuroendocrine marker that should be, that non-small cell lung cancers should lack. And because, because acquired tyrosine kinase domain mutations are such a critical contributor to resistance to ALK-directed therapies, we should spend a little bit of time talking about them. And the first point to get across is that while there, there are five approved therapies, FDA-approved therapies for treatment of ALK-positive lung cancer, and these are all structurally distinct. And so what that means is that they all have distinct resistance profiles, or the number of mutations that emerges and the specific mutations that emerge on therapy is unique for each one of these ALK inhibitors. This was well, well illustrated by a study led by Justin Gaynor in our group, where we studied tissue specimens from patients relapsing on various ALK inhibitors and uh, sequenced them to look for ALK mutations and compared across cohorts to see if there were differences. And what you see from this data is that as you move from the first generation to the second generation, so as you move from crizotinib to seritinib and electinib, what you see is that the proportion of patients who has an ALK mutation in a resistant specimen increases to more than 50%. If you look at the crizotinib pie chart, what you, what you might notice is that there's many more ALK mutations in that slice, many different, more unique ALK mutations within that slice, within the pie chart. And that's because the spectrum narrows as you move from the first generation to the second generation of ALK inhibitors. But what you might also notice is that particular slices of the pie become more prominent as you move to the second generation. And in particular, slices like that red slice that represents ALK G1202R, which is a well-known common recalcitrant and refractory mutation that confers resistance and uh, the way we think of it clinically is all first and second generation ALK inhibitors. And these findings have really been mirrored in preclinical studies. This is a very complicated table that I'll go over in detail with you, but, the, but suffice it to say, this study, the purpose of this study was to investigate whether or not various ALK inhibitors were able to suppress the anti-proliferative activity or, or proliferation of BAF3 cells engineered to express EML4 and various ALK mutations. So as you move down the table, the various mutations are, are listed in the first column, the different ALK inhibitors are listed across the top, and sensitivity is indicated by the color-coded boxes. Green represents sensitivity, whereas yellow and red indicate various degrees of resistance. And the main point to get across in this slide is that as you can look at these slides, none of these uh, resistance profiles or none of these columns are superimposable. If we really focus on sensitivity and use maybe a dumbed-down version of this chart, one, there's a couple of points that are immediately clear. One, that lorlatinib has the broadest spectrum of anti-ALK activity, and crizotinib is the least potent ALK inhibitor. And then, because these resistance profiles are not superimposable, one can sequence drugs. This is why seritinib, brigatinib, electinib work after crizotinib, and this is why lorlatinib still has effect in patients who are relapsing on the first and second generation ALK inhibitors. 
despite all the lessons that we've learned from tissue sampling and how fundamental this has been to our understanding of the molecular basis of resistance to ALK-directed therapies, and also informing the design of drugs like lorlatinib, there are limitations of single-site tissue sampling. And as an example, this is a patient of mine who, after multi exposure to multiple ALK inhibitors, developed a progressive liver lesion as well as enlarging abdominal lymph nodes. Because the liver was the most accessible of these sites, we sampled the liver and we detected an ALK I1171N mutation. The patient initiated a therapy directed towards this mutation, only to not respond at all to therapy. He developed increasing abdominal pain and basically massive ascites. Sampling of the acidic fluid revealed completely, a completely different set of mutations. And so this gets at the concept of heterogeneity, and particularly spatial heterogeneity. The idea that the, metastat the genetic makeup of, or molecular makeup of, distinct, of metastatic sites may be distinct from the molecular makeup at other sites, and even within lesions in a given site. There's other types of heterogeneity, including temporal heterogeneity, the kind of the, the change in the molecular makeup in a, at a given site over time under therapeutic selective pressure. This is the thing that, you know, that repeat tissue uh, biopsies is trying to get at. But despite the, the, the strides we've made with repeat tissue biopsy at sam repeatedly sampling tumors, there are limitations to that. The lesion has to be a certain size for you to biopsy it. It has to be accessible to biopsy. So even in the best case scenario, we're only getting a punctuated approximation of what's going on in the complete clonal uh, landscape. And perhaps something that allows for more continuous molecular surveillance would be more beneficial. And so these limitations of single-site tissue sampling provide the rationale for exploring alternative strategies for genotyping tumors, such as plasma genotyping. The major advantages of, uh, perhaps one of the most important advantages of plasma genotyping is that it's non-invasive. This allows you to repeatedly perform uh, blood, blood collections and blood analyses, and this provides basically a better approximation of the temporal variation in the molecular makeup of tumors, and also because uh, plasma theoretically includes circulating molecular, ma molecular material from multiple metastatic sites. It may, better, it may provide a better representation of the composite spatial molecular landscape as well. And in the most practical sense, for patients who can't get a biopsy or who do get a biopsy but it's low yield or insufficient for analysis, this might provide an opportunity to genotype their tumors. I've borrowed an image from a, a review recently published by Ryan Corcoran at MGH and Dr. Chapner. I thought that has this excellent figure here that it is basically the ultimate goal of liquid biopsy, that one would be able to use it throughout the continuum of disease. And for patients with localized lung cancers, you would use it to monitor for re minimal residual disease monitoring to anticipate relapses. And for patients with metastatic disease, one would really use it to track clonal evolution during treatment, with subsequent treatments. And so this is still a work in progress. There's certain diseases have stood out, lung cancer, colon cancer, breast cancer for application of plasma genotyping. And there's multiple sources of circulating tumor-derived nucleic acids, as you've heard from many of the talks today. These range from free-floating nucleic acid or circulating tumor DNA and circulating tumor RNA to molecular material kind of, or DNA contained in exosomes and microvesicles and, con and uh, contained in circulating tumor cells or clusters of tumor cells. For the rest of the talk, I'm actually gonna only focus on circulating tumor DNA. And 
because it's, imp it's very important to note, first off, that the preponderance of, of basically cell-free DNA in the circulation is not really derived from tumors. It's derived from white blood cells and, and benign cells. And so in order for circulating tumor DNA analysis to become relevant to clinical practice, it was necessary to develop the technology to be able to isolate circulating tumor DNA and suppress the, the background, I guess, noise from non-tumor-derived cells. There's multiple techniques that have been used for interrogating uh, circulating tumor DNA, and they can be broadly categorized into PCR-based approaches and NGS-based approaches. There's advantages to each of them. So the advantages of PCR is that it's cheaper, it's faster, and if you use emulsion-based approaches, it can be very sensitive, but you have to know what you're looking for, and it performs best for certain types of genetic alterations like mutations. Advantages of NGS is that you can look at, you can simultaneously interrogate multiple genes, and you can look at multiple types of genetic alterations, like fusions in particular for ALK. Because you have so much information, the turnaround time tends to be longer. There's, you know, there's intrinsic qualities to a tumor that might affect sensitivity, including the disease burden. So the, more, the higher the disease burden, the more likely you are to detect circulating tumor DNA. Certain metastatic sites don't shed circulating tumor DNA, or at least we're not able to capture it with current assays. That includes brain-only disease or thoracic cavity-confined disease. And there's particular genetic alterations that are more challenging to detect than mutations or kind of insertions and deletions. And these include fusions, which is applicable when you're thinking about molecular profiling for ALK-positive lung cancer, as well as amplification events, which are very pertinent when you're studying resistance. And so, one of the things to point out is that li using liquid biopsies for management of lung cancer is not a new concept. In fact, it's, it's integral to the management of EGFR mutant lung cancer in, in current practice. And for those of you who don't know much about EGFR mutant lung cancer, this is a subset of lung cancer that is present in 15% of Western po uh, 15% of Western populations with non-small cell lung cancer. And it's very similar to ALK in the sense that we have first, second, and third generation drugs for management of the disease that are quite effective. But, the, but it is distinct from ALK in the sense that in contrast to the earlier slides where I showed you all the available possible mutations that one can have at relapse on a first and second generation ALK inhibitor, there really is one primary mutation that emerges at, resist, at relapse on first and second generation EGFR inhibitors, and that's this T790M mutation. And this mutation predicts for response to next generation EGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitors like osimertinib that were designed to overcome this. And so there was, this is data from the phase one study of osimertinib, or exploring the anti-tumor activity of osimertinib in patients relapsing on first and second generation ALK inhibitor, or EGFR inhibitors, my apologies. And what, I, I put this slide up not to discuss the data, but to discuss, this is one of the first studies in lung cancer that had asked the question of, if I determine whether or not someone qualifies for a therapy based on whether or not I detect the, the alteration of interest here, the T790M mutation in plasma, or if I detect it with tissue, do the outcomes differ? And interestingly and notably, what they found is that there were nearly identical responses. So 62% versus a 63% response rate if you found it in tissue versus plasma, and identical progression-free survival of 9.3 months. So based on this study and multiple other studies in this EGFR space, profiling plasma is, is, has already been kind of widely adopted for management of EGFR uh, mutant lung cancer. 
The question is, can we apply this to something like ALK-positive lung cancer that is truly defined by a more complex molecular alteration? And so this is, this is one of the major focuses of my research and with multiple collaborators in the lung group here at Mass General as well as, patient, as, well as collaborators in Charlestown Navy Yard. We've basically uh, relied on the fact, and I don't know if everyone here is aware, but MGH is probably one of the leading centers for referrals for ALK-positive lung cancer. So we, we see a high volume of patients with ALK-positive lung cancer, more than 500 patients you know, in the last few years and about one to two new patients a week. And so what we've been doing is we've been enrolling these patients in, this, in our longitudinal plasma analysis study and serially collecting and assessing and analyzing plasma specimens from these patients. We've partnered with research collaborators from Garden Health and Novartis to ask, ask several questions, a few of which I'm going to be discussing today. One is assessing tissue plasma concordance and sensitivity. Second, we've been trying to look for molecular mechanisms of resistance to next generation TKIs. We've also been interest in, interested in looking at whether the implications of ALK mutation dynamics during therapy. And finally, if we can, we're trying to determine whether or not we can identify plasma biomarkers of lorlatinib response. So I'll, in the next few minutes, I'll discuss some of our early findings from these studies. And so the first question, and one of the biggest barriers, or one of the biggest hurdles that had to be overcome to ask more robust questions in terms of plasma profiling for ALK-positive lung cancer was whether or not we can, basic, we can detect the fundamental unit of ALK-positive lung cancer, the ALK fusion in plasma. And for disease entities like EGFR mutant lung cancer, for you to say the circulating tumor DNA is present, you really have to find that EGFR driver mutation. And so this was a study designed to, which looked at 50, approximately 50 patients relapsing on a second generation ALK inhibitor to determine how often we detected the fusion at relapse. This relapse time point is critical. Number one, it's a, a, a major therapeutic branch point. And second, one would imagine that at relapse, this would be one of the most, this would be one of the scenarios where you should theoretically have the highest amount of circulating tumor DNA shedding. And to orient you to this heat map, the top row indicates whether or not an ALK fusion was present. Blue denotes presence of the ALK fusion in the plasma, and white means that it was not detected. All of these patients have ALK-positive lung cancer. And then the, the bottom part of the grid is the, indicates the presence of ALK tyrosine kinase domain mutations, which you can imagine, even if you didn't find the fusion, you might say that detection of one of those mutations would be, would be indication enough, would, would support the presence of circulating tumor DNA and would be enough to go by when selecting a next-line therapy. What we found is that among these 50 patients, we detected the fusion in about approximately 70% of cases. And in a separate smaller analysis where we looked at 15 patients and we asked a kind of a more direct, a, a deeper question, not just can we find the fusion, but can we make sure that that fusion that we're finding is the exact same fusion variant as what is present in tissue, we found 100% agreement. And for those of you who don't know, uh, are not familiar with the concept of a fusion variant with EML4-ALK, the concept is that whereas the breakpoint within ALK is con relatively conserved across all ALK fusions, the, the breakpoint or the cut point within each EML4 varies significantly, and there's multiple variants depending on where an EML4 is fused to ALK. And so it was, it, it was reassuring for us that not only were we able to detect the fusions in 70% of patients, but it, the fusion variant, there was agreement at that level. 
but there's a patient population where it matters the most to detect the fusion in plasma. And these are patients who don't have ALK mutations at relapse. These are, these are the cases where you really need that ALK fusion to, to prove, unless you have some other alteration like a P53 mutation that you know is in the tumor, to prove that you've recovered circulating tumor DNA. I've highlighted three cases where uh, neither the fusion nor the uh, ALK mutation were detected in plasma. Another question we've been asking is, what does, are there particular genetic alterations that we detect in plasma in patients relapsing on second generation ALK inhibitors? And to ask this question, we've, we, this is data from the first 43 patients we enrolled in this study or that we analyzed on this study. And to walk you through this table, uh, at the top is, or this heat map, at the top is the treatments that patients received. As you see, most of these patients received the second generation ALK inhibitor in the second line setting or in the post-cruzotinib setting. And there are a number of, and the majority of patients received electinib, but there are a number of patients who received multiple second generation ALK inhibitors. The second division is, is indicating whether or not ALK tyrosine kinase domain mutations were present at relapse on a second generation ALK inhibitor. And the third category is looking at non-ALK genetic alterations that were present. What we saw in our analysis was that ALK mutations were detected in plasma in 60% of specimens. And that red slice of the pie, if you go back to earlier slides, that G1202R was the most common ALK mutation at relapse. And we did find a handful of mutations that may have indicated ALK-independent resistance, such as BRAF mutations, KRAS mutations, and MET-exon 14 skipping. But by far, the most common thing that we detected at relapse was an ALK mutation. So these were encouraging findings demonstrating what has been similar to what had been seen in uh, tissue cohorts, that plasma is a reliable way to, to, to profile tumors at relapse on second generation ALK inhibitors. But how does this compare to tissue specifically? And because the majority of patients in our earlier, in the earlier slide were patients who had received treatment with electinib, we, we narrowed or focused our, this analysis on those patients, and particularly patients who had only received second-line electinib, not patients who had received other second-generation ALK inhibitors. And so it's important to note that these are completely independent cohorts with very minimal overlap. The first study was looking at the ALK mutations in patients relapsing on electinib by studying tissue biopsies. This study was led by Jessica Lin in our group. And what she found was that 40% of, 60, I guess to say it in the reverse, 60% of patients had ALK mutations at relapse. And G1202R was the most common one. When we look at our liquid biopsy cohort, we find a similar thing. 60% of patients have ALK mutations at relapse, but interestingly, we find more patients with more than one ALK mutation. So whether it's unclear whether or not this rep represents spatial heterogeneity or the fact that perhaps more patients in the tissue biopsy have multiple ALK mutations. It's just that you only sampled one site. Uh, that remains to be established. And other questions in, uh, that have been kind of raised by this is, how relevant are all of those mutations? Is every single one of those mutations con contributing to the resistance phenotype? And as an example of this concept, I'm going to uh, present a case of a patient where we saw this level of tissue plasma discordance. This is a patient seen at, Mass at MGH by our lung group who had three different ALK inhibitors and had profiling at relapse on each one of, this, one of these uh, ALK inhibitors. And the cool part is that this was all thoracentesis, so it was always profiling of the pleural space. And so all of these pleural fluid samples were sent for whole exome sequencing, and this uh, clonal evolution map was created by Mike Lawrence here. And what you see is that at relapse on crizotinib, the patient did not have any mutations. At relapse on electinib, she had an ALK G1202R mutation. And by the time she relapsed on lorlatinib, she had a G1202R in addition to 1196M. And an uh, analysis demonstrated that these were in cysts or present on the same allele, generating a very highly refractory uh, compound mutation.
When we looked at her plasma, ob obtained at the time of relapse on lorlatinib, we found G1202R as well as L1196M, and these were the top variants detected in plasma. But there are four other ALK mutations that were seen at allelic frequencies that were 10 to 100-fold lower. And so the question is, are these present in other sites? Do these matter as much as, for, for example, we don't, but what if we had a therapy that could effectively target G1202R and L1196M? Should we try it when we know that these other things are in the blood? And these are questions that are still outstanding and, and kind of remain to be explored. Another focus of our work has been really looking at predictive biomarkers of lorlatinib response. As you recall, lorlatinib is a third-generation ALK inhibitor that probably is the most, had the, has the broadest spectrum of activity against ALK mutations. And so what we've done is we've looked at patients, we've collected blood at relapse on lorlatinib, at relapse on a second-generation ALK inhibitor for patients going on treatment with lorlatinib, and really divided patients by response to lorlatinib into responders and those with intrinsic resistance, and tried to see if there are differences between these two groups. When we looked at the, and the responders are indicated by the orange boxes. And one thing to note is these are heavily pretreated patients, so no one went on lorlatinib as kind of first-line treatment, well, as first-line treatment or anything like that. And what you see is that for all but one patient who responded to lorlatinib had an ALK mutation in a pretreatment tumor, but that's, that's not kind of an all or nothing, right? There's patients with ALK mutations who did not respond to lorlatinib. This suggests that we ought to look at more than ALK mutations and to try to predict whether or not someone will benefit from treatment with lorlatinib. And so it's possible that co-alterations may modulate sensitivity to lorlatinib. And so if we look at the bigger picture, it's, it, we probably should not be thinking of, of it as responders and non-responders, but rather dividing patients into four groups, right? There's patients who groups one and four behave according to what we expect. Group one is patients with ALK mutations who respond to treatment. Group four is patients who don't have these ALK mutations who don't respond to treatment. But the more intriguing and more interesting groups are groups two and three. Group two is a patient without an ALK mutation who responded to lorlatinib. And one could argue maybe this is just a limitation of our plasma genotyping, right? Perhaps that, that mutation was there and we just didn't detect it. And I think the, more, the most intriguing group really is those patients with ALK mutations who don't respond to lorlatinib because this is the patient population where there's an opportunity to really tease out whether or not the interplay between non-ALK alterations and ALK alterations really affects the balance of whether or not someone might respond to lorlatinib. And so we're building upon this study looking at a larger patient size that will allow us to really study groups one and three to see what the differences are. And to, as an example of the potential for non-ALK alterations to really drive the resistance phenotype, this is a patient that's seen at our, that, that was seen by our lung group, a young lady who unfortunately was diagnosed with ALK-positive lung cancer when she was six months pregnant. She delivered the child, went on to receive treatment with ALK, positive, with ALK inhibitors, and had very short-lived responses to therapy. And this is a picture taken during response to electinib and then when she had multi-site progression on electinib. Sampling of a liver lesion demonstrated a kind of nearly, near replacement of the specimen with cancer cells and demonstrated an ALK-G1202R mutation. And so we were excited here because we said this is something we can do something about because lorlatinib should be effective for patients with G1202R mutations. The patient went on to receive treatment with lorlatinib, did not respond at all. She actually had primary progression to treatment. Throughout her disease course, we'd been collecting plasma specimens and analyzing them using a 566 gene assay, which allowed us to look at uh, multiple kind of non-ALK genetic alterations. And 
What you see is that throughout the patient's disease course, she, she received crizotinib, electinib, chemo, plus electinib and lorlatinib. And you see that there's dynamic, it, it's a dynamic uh, resistance profile, right? Mutation profile, where some mutations, uh, again, the non-ALK mutations are illustrated by the blue line. The EML-ALK fusion is illustrated by the maroon line. And then the ALK resistance mutations, and the one you should really focus on is G1202R, is indicated by the gold. And what you see is that when you really focus in on the lorlatinib time point, G1202R, yes, it's present, but it doesn't really budge, and it stays at a very low allelic frequency. Here, allelic frequency is measured by the y-axis and ranges from 0 to 30%. But these blue lines, these non-ALK alterations just shoot up immediately on therapy, suggesting to us that, yes, while we detected a G1202R mutation, it's not what was driving resistance to her tumor. And this speaks to the benefit of comprehensive molecular profiling at relapse to really tease out how relevant these ALK mutations that we're detecting are and, to, and particularly to quantify the contribution of each one of these mutations to the resistance profile. There's, a, there's many outstanding questions that have been raised by our initial analyses, and I just wanted to go over some of them. One is just kind of building off of what I just talked about in the last two slides. Can we use the relative allelic frequency of plasma mutations to help predict which mutations are driving resistance? And if we find that some kind of have super high allelic frequencies and then there's others that are kind of have much lower allelic frequencies, like that case of the patient that I showed two slides ago, can we target the dominant, what, what, would, what would responses look like? Would patients respond if we targeted the dominant ALK mutations or the ones with the highest allelic frequencies? And when we think about groups one versus group three, what makes a patient who has an ALK mutation respond versus someone who doesn't? Are there particular non-ALK alterations that are enriched among patients with ALK kinase domain mutations who don't respond to lorlatinib? So we'll need larger studies to tease out this question, but it is one of our areas of active investigation. And then the last two have to do with monitoring dynamics of the ALK mutation during therapy with lorlatinib. Can we use, can we monitor, can we model, can we use monitoring and modeling to figure out which patients are more likely to respond to treatment and, 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 for, and more likely to respond for a durable period of time, meaning are those patients who clear their mutations more likely to have durable responses? And also, can we use ALK mutation dynamics to predict what eventual resistance mutations will emerge on lorlatinib? Meaning, if someone clears an ALK resistance mutation, are they more likely to have an ALK independent resistance alteration at relapse versus those who have maintained that resistance mutation throughout? Are they more likely to be the person who gets a compound mutation? And so these are all outstanding questions in the focus of our future studies. In conclusion, acquired ALK tyrosine kinase tyrosine kinase domain mutations are a major contributor to resistance to second-generation ALK inhibitors, and these mutations may actually predict for increased likelihood of response to lorlatinib. However, as I pointed out, not every patient with an ALK kinase domain mutation is going to respond to lorlatinib. Uh, we've, uh, multiple studies have already established the utility of tissue genotyping for dissecting or kind of under, improving understanding of the molecular mechanisms underlying re relapse on ALK-directed therapies, but I believe that our work demonstrates or uh, provides uh, some examples of the clinical utility of plasma genotyping in this setting. And as, I've, as we've demonstrated in our work using plasma genotyping or liquid biopsies, and, it has been, and as has been demonstrated with serial tissue analyses, the genetic complexity of ALK-positive lung cancer increases over time, and this increase in genetic complexity influences response to treatment. And, I, and based on our studies, I feel that plasma genotyping compared to single-site tissue genotyping may be a more valuable tool at this point for dissecting the complex ALK resistance landscape.
And I, I could not have done any of this work without my collaborators in the thoracic oncology group. All of our doctors are, are very instrumental to this effort and are, are, are always signing patients for this protocol. I'm going to give special thanks to Alice Shaw, Justin Gaynor, and Jessica Lin, who are really the members of, the, in our, of our thoracic oncology group, who in addition to myself focus on ALK-positive lung cancer. We couldn't have done this without our molecular pathology colleagues and also our laboratory collaborators at the Charlestown Navy Yard facility, Aaron Hada and Cyril Benes. And I also want to thank the Garden Health team because they've really been helpful for many of these analyses. And I have several funding sources, sources to mention, one of which is the uh, ACS IRG grant here at MGH, which enabled me to do these liquid, to pay and kind of do these liquid biopsy studies. Thank you. Great talk, at the end. Thanks. So a qu quick question. Um, I'm actually really curious about this concept of tumor. Uh, so when you had the intrinsic... Uh, uh, resistance, right? The instant resistant tumors where you showed that you had the, from plasma, you could see that you had these uh, kinase uh, domain mutations now that you would have expected to respond to lorelanib, but it still did not respond. And what I'm kind of curious about is like kind of two pieces. One is, is there any, any evidence to show that even though there's intrinsic resistance, that if you biopsy the tumor again afterwards, that you see like another alteration or something like that that might, might have actually existed previously, but you just didn't capture it in the plasma, and then, but it you know overtook the rest of the of the subclones and then became that. And secondly, also when you saw the intrinsic resistance, and, and if you did another plasma again after that after the you know the resistance, do you see additional alterations? And that's okay. So I, I think one case that I would that kind of exemplifies this, which unfortunately we didn't get tissue biopsies after, was a patient who had a G1202R mutation and had, and we would have predicted the patient would respond to therapy, and she just blew through lorlatinib. And at, when we looked at her plasma afterwards, something we had not appreciated before that she had at resistance was actually high-level MET amplification. And that's not something you develop within a week on therapy. So it, we would assume that these were present already and just kind of under the limits of detection of the assay. When we have studied, it's tough. The study of ALK-independent resistance is very challenging in the sense that the majority of ALK-independent signaling is not driven by genetic mechanisms. And so when we've really studied biopsies, we really can't find, minus kind of a one-off uh, CKIT mutation, you really can't find genetic alterations to drive resistance. What the kind of the sequential biopsy has been more informative for is teasing out those patients who get compound mutations. Thank you. Thank you very much, Thank <laughs> you.